All right. So we're going to continue our study of Ken Johnson's book titled Ancient Messianic Festivals. And today we're going to pick back up where we last talked about the Festival of Tabernacles or Sukkot. And we are going to segue into the eighth conclusion. And before that, actually, we're going to look also at Hoshana Rabbah. So we're going to talk about a number of things if we can get to it tonight. So anyways, reviewing a little bit about tabernacles, because it's been a while since we talked about tabernacles. Tabernacles typologically points to the millennium whenever Jesus enters the third temple and he dwells in our midst. And so 2,000 years ago, Jesus tabernacled among us in flesh. He's going to tabernacle among us once again in his glorified body. And this time he is going to reign on the throne of David in the newly rebuilt temple. So talking about how this festival ties into certain books in the Bible, in the Gospel of John, there's a number of practices or references that are made that I didn't understand unless I first read this. Like, I mean, it kind of clicked. For example, in John, there's a lot of stuff in John that we're going to look at tonight. In John chapter 7, this is whenever the Festival of Tabernacles was going on. And Jesus makes a really interesting statement here, and it, it tells us exactly when he made this statement. So it's in John 7, verse 37. It says, In the last day, so it's the last day of Sukkot, that great day of the feast, and that great day is Hoshana Rabbah, it means the great day of salvation. So the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. So, this is at the very end of Tabernacles. And this was probably around the exact same time. It was the same day. I wonder what time of the day it was, but... It was the same day that they did something called the Beit Hashovah. And the Beit Hashovah is this water festival. They did it all throughout the seven days of tabernacles. But the eighth day, or sorry, go back a little bit. The seventh day, the last day of tabernacles, they did the Beit Hashovah a little bit differently. It was more intensified, I suppose. So let me explain that ritual to you. And again, this is all in Ken Johnson's book, and he does a good job of summarizing it. But essentially what happens is you have a procession of priests, and they have willow branches, each about 25 feet long. They leave the temple, and they go to the Mount of Olives through the eastern gate. And when they got to the Mount of Olives is actually when they would cut down those willow branches. And they would come back, and when they came back, they would go through the east gate, into Jerusalem, heading to the temple. And this procession would have people blowing a shofar. There was a person who would play the flute. And the person who played the flute was called the Pierced One, which seems significant. Mm, yeah. 
And uh, the high priest and the assistant, they were also doing a procession at the same time, but they went through a different gate. They actually went through the, the water gate down to the pool of Siloam. But the procession of priests and the high priest would meet together entering the temple. And the group of priests, they would actually march around the altar. And they do that seven times. And then they would take the willow branches that they got at the Mount of Olives. And they'd lay them against the altar and it formed what looked like a sukkah. Okay, a tent. A tabernacle. It also is called a chupa or a wedding canopy. So we have that concept of the bride of Christ. But the high priest would take a golden vessel of living water and his assistant with a silver vessel of sacred wine and they would go up to the altar and they would pour both liquids together over the altar to cleanse it. So they would do that same procession all throughout the week, but it was on this last day, the seventh day, that they would actually circle the altar seven times. And this pouring out of the water and the pouring out of the wine happened on the same day that Jesus said, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. And earlier on in the Gospel of John, he says that in order for someone to be saved and have everlasting life, they have to eat his flesh and drink his blood, which he was speaking symbolically about believing, excuse me, believing in his sacrifice, accepting the atonement, which is what we talked about uh, earlier this week. But... When we think about tabernacles and the millennium, the living water makes perfect sense. If you think about the millennial temple, it speaks about how there's going to be a river that comes down from the temple. Now, this is not the same river that's described in Revelation, because in Revelation, at the very end, it's talking about the new Jerusalem. This is after the end of the millennium. In Ezekiel, it's talking about, obviously, a rebuilt temple. Jerusalem's topography has changed because of the tribulation. I think personally that the temple that's rebuilt right before the tribulation starts, mm -hmm. that's what most people suppose. We will know the amount of time involved, how much of a gap there'll be between the building of it and the commencement of the tribulation. But that third temple, I believe, will be destroyed. Mm -hmm. And it says in Zechariah that the Messiah himself will build his temple. Right. So there's going to be this gap of time between the end of the tribulation and the beginning of the millennium, where he rebuilds his temple. And then he... I don't know how long it'll take. Uh, there's a number of days in Daniel. It talks about, I think it's around 1,200-something days. You have to go and look at it. Again, this is just from memory. But at the very end of Daniel, chapter 12, it mentions this interval, certain number of days. And that seems to be an interval after the tribulation comes to a close, after Armageddon. There's good. Well, it may not have been that number of days. Okay, that may just be, again, faulty memory. I may be getting that confused within uh, Revelation. It talks about the, yes, the three and a half years. Uh, but again, if you want to know how many days, you can go and look at Daniel 12. I mean, this is just from memory. Like I said, it's been a while since I looked at it. But there is an interval of time. It's definitely not four years, but, but there is an interval of time there. And during that, the temple is rebuilt. Well, anyways... There's going to be this river that flows down from the temple, from, from Jerusalem. And it speaks of this river going down to the Dead Sea, and the Dead Sea basically becoming alive. Like, there's not going to be 
right. you know, salt in the sea anymore. It's going to be revived. There's going to be living things in it. So obviously there's going to be a lot of changes that take place in Israel and all over the world too. So tabernacles, I think, is a picture of a cleansing that's taking place. The cleansing of the nations, the cleansing of Israel, the cleansing of the universe, because we have changes that are taking place. And Isaiah talks about how, you know, the lion is going to eat grass like an ox. Things are going to change. Kids are going to stick their hands in the, the den of a serpent and they're not going to get bit. You know, there are all these things that are happening then that right now that's not the case. So God's going to remove his curse from creation, but it's not going to all happen overnight. There's going to be this segue period, the millennium. You want to hear what these numbers are? Sure. Tell me what the numbers are from Daniel. Blessed are those who wait and remain until the end of the 1,335 days. So would that indicate that there's like 900, not quite 900 days? I don't know. I, I remember when we were in Sunday school, I think Scott, you asked no, me a question like about 45 this. Days. 45 days? Yeah. Yeah. It's 45 days. I think you asked me a question about this, and oh. I remember studying and researching and then getting back with you, but it's been a while, so... But 45 days, I mean, there's plenty, of, there's plenty of time there to judge the nations, to rebuild the temple, and for the millennium to get kicked off. But anyways, in the millennium, there's this cleansing that's going on, but that cleansing isn't finished until the end of the millennium where God takes the, the earth and he makes a new one. So the millennium is a weird time, and that's why I think a lot of Christians... Up, up until the 1800s, really, when premillennialism came back and made a revival, people didn't like the idea of the kingdom because the kingdom was just too weird. It was like, you're telling me there's going to be a thousand years where it's not all done. Like, I mean, Jesus is reigning on earth, but it's not finished. There are people that are going to be born, have natural bodies, living on the earth at the same time with people with glorified bodies. And then there are going to be people who actually rebel against Jesus while he's reigning on earth. Then Satan's going to be bound for a thousand years and then be released. And all this stuff is, it's, yeah, it's, but it's very strange to people. They think, okay, when Jesus comes back, it's bing, bada, boom, it's over and eternity commences. But with Sukkot, with tabernacles, you see that the number of seven is significant. Okay. So you have the 6,000 years, according to the old Jewish interpretation early Christian opinion. You have 6,000 years of work. You have 6,000 years of, of man's history. And then you have that thousand. That thousand is a rest because it's a golden age. It's a time of peace, but it's not quite finished yet. Okay. It, there's still things to be done. That's why there's a millennium. That's why there's this thousand year gap. Now, of course we could talk about why that's going to happen. Uh, you know, I've wondered myself, why is the, the devil bound during that time? Why not just go straight to the judgment? You know, that is, that is a, a legitimate question, but we do know that God is going to fulfill his promises to Abraham's physical descendants during this time. Right. So my opinion is Israel has to have this time where they are reigning over the nations in a way that is, it's not balanced out. It's not like the nations and Israel are on the same level here. Israel is superior to the nations at this time. And that was promised to Abraham. So this has to be done. It has to be fulfilled. When you get to the new Jerusalem, though, and you're talking about the new heaven, the new earth, 
Jerusalem at that point is not a city belonging to ethnic Israel. Jerusalem is the bride, which consists of everybody who's saved. And then when it talks about the nations will, you know, will be gods, they will be his people. Well, in the Greek, this doesn't come across in the, in the King James, but in the Greek, it's peoples. And so now we don't have, okay, Israel's God's people. And then there's the other people. <laughs> now you have all the peoples are his peoples. You don't see a distinction anymore. And of course, didn't Paul say something to that effect in Galatians 3? He says there's neither Jew nor Gentile. So what that would indicate is while Israel will always be Israel, they're always going to be blessed. You know, the people who are saved in the tribulation and then they go into the millennium, they're going to be forever in God's new creation. Okay. And I don't think that our ethnicities will be erased. When it talks about the nations, I think that literally means there will be nations, right? Um, but they won't have a, a superior position like they did during the millennium in that case. So who's going to be reigning over the nations? It will be the people who have overcome. Whether they're Jew or Gentile, doesn't matter. Those people are going to reign over the nations. If that makes sense. Yes. I, I think that it'll be the church at that point. There's nobody else. It will be the church. And there are Jews in the church and there are Gentiles in the church. But everybody will be the church. Right. Then. So. That's what I'm saying. The people. The. Yes, it'll be the overcomers. It'll be those who have run the race with endurance and they receive the crown that Paul talked about. But, running for the prize. Those people will have authority over Christians who have not received that same prize. That, that came in smelling like smoke, yes, essentially, yeah. The carnal believers yes. will be reigned over by the overcoming believers. Yeah. Sure. Obviously there won't be any jurisprudence, there won't be any need for yeah, there'll be no sin, but there will be some way in which they are granted authority and responsibilities that other people don't have. And and again, that's one of those big questions that I have in the back of my mind. When you don't have sin in the world, it takes a lot of response. It takes a lot of the responsibility away from a ruler, right? Because a ruler is trying to maintain law and order. Well, if there's no sin, there's no you don't need law and order. So what what ways are they going to exercise their authority? I don't know how that's going to work, but I just know that it's promised and it's described. But anyways, you can see that the millennium is this transitionary phase. We're not quite over to right. the other side. I mean, when the rapture happens, like it's already done for us, right? I mean, sure. if Jesus comes back today, if we have overcome and we hear, well done, good and faithful servant, then we're going to be the ones who are in heaven saying, you know, you have made us kings and priests and we're going to be throwing our crowns at his feet. Mm-hmm. And when, when he comes back and he sets up his reign on earth, we will reign with him then. So our, our relationship to the nations will be that even though natural-bodied Israelites have authority over the natural-bodied Gentiles, the church will be reigning over the natural-bodied people. Yeah, you know, so there is a strange hierarchy that's going on there. So we're already going to be experiencing the reward that Christ has given us if we've been faithful in that way. But whenever you go into the eternal state, now it's different. There's not, okay, you got the glorified class you got the natural body people. It's everybody glorified. Everybody is the bride. Everybody is part of the same family in every sense, not just spiritually, but physically too. We're all part of the same family. So um, that brings us now um, to the next day that's mentioned um, 
in Ken Johnson's book. So again, you have the great day, Hoshana Rabbah, which is the day described in John 7, where they would do that water ritual. They would pour the wine, the blood of Jesus, no doubt is what that represents. And the water, Jesus said, I am the living water. And so we have that. That would represent the end of the millennium. But then you have the next day, and that's called the Shemini Atzeret, which is the day after Tabernacles has come to a close. So you have seven days for Tabernacles, and then in Leviticus it mentions that there was an eighth day. So after Tabernacles came to a close, there was this other day. So it's like it happens right after Tabernacles. Everybody that's gathered in Jerusalem is really coming to celebrate all eight days, but it's set apart. It's a little different. So you have seven days, Tabernacles, but nobody goes anywhere because the next thing is the eighth day. And it's a, it's a sacred uh, festival. Um, another thing that's interesting, before I talk about the eighth conclusion, I, I wanted to mention this. The great day, the seventh day of tabernacles, is considered one of the three festivals of judgment among the Jewish people. So their three festivals of judgment are Rosh Hashanah, so you have trumpets. And we would agree that's a time of judgment because that's going to separate the people out. You know, judgment's coming on the people who are left behind. So there you have your first judgment festival. Then you have Yom Kippur. Jesus comes back at the end of the tribulation. That's also a time of judgment. And then you have the final judgment, the great white throne judgment. And that's represented by Hoshana Rabbah. So that's that last day of tabernacle. So when the millennium comes to a close, that is absolutely when you see the great white throne judgment appear. So it all seems to line up very, very well that you have these festivals representing the end times. I mean, there's just a, a sketch there. You have the trumpets, Rosh Hashanah, okay? And then you have the terrible days, the Yamim, Noraim. Then you have at the end of that Yom Kippur, that's where Jesus comes back. There's Armageddon, the sheep and goats judgment. Mm -hmm. Then you have tabernacles. You have the millennium. There's this cleansing that's going on during this time, okay? But then you get to the end and the cleansing is complete because they walk around the altar seven times and they pour out that water, and they pour out that blood, cleansing is done. At the same time, it's a time of judgment. And the final judgment takes place at the end of the millennium. And then the lake of fire. Yes. Yes. The dead... I went back and I looked at this today, just in preparation. In Revelation, when it talks about the Great White Throne Judgment, it says the dead. So nobody who is coming before the judgment, the Great White Throne Judgment is a person who was alive at the time and then is brought up to the great white throne judgment. Um, these are people that have died, even if they had died like recently, like, you know, the, the second Gog Magog war, whenever the fire comes down outside the walls. And, and so everybody that's coming there is dead. So what about those people who survived through the millennium? The people who were behind the walls, <laughs> you know, in Jerusalem, when it's surrounded by the people who are behind the walls there, um, what happens to them? Well, I assume, this is an assumption because the Bible does not actually treat this subject mm -hmm. at all. It doesn't give us any information about it. I assume that those people are probably caught up and changed just like the rapture. Mm -hmm. um, they're not. I don't think God's going to kill them off first. Mm -hmm. Okay, I, I think it's more likely that they're simply changed. So all the people at that point that are brought up to the Great White Throne Judgment, they are, are the unbelieving dead. They're the ones that are in death and Hades. Right. They've been... They've been held there for this day of judgment. The people that just died in this judgment of Gog Magog that's mentioned in Revelation 20, those people are being brought up 
So everybody that comes before the great white throne judgment is an unbeliever. And they're not found with their names written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And so then they're cast into the lake of fire. And all the, again, this is all the people from history. All the people from history. So it really is th- like bringing it all together. Even Yom Kippur, it's the people that are on earth at that time. They're the ones that are experiencing that judgment. They're the ones being brought before Christ. But the great white throne judgment has everybody from history that is currently housed in hell, in Hades. Those are the people that are brought up. Okay, so yeah, it's, yeah, it is. But, you know, we have to remind ourselves that we don't know, and this is something I comfort myself with, we don't know how much witness, how much light there was in the Old Testament days. We know that there were people like Melchizedek, okay? Not a part of Abraham's line. Abraham knew him. Abraham recognized, hey, this priest is not a false priest. Like, he's got the right God. And we know that Noah and Shem, they they were hanging around there for quite some time, okay? They were alive to see the Tower of Babel go down. Um, They were alive during the days of Abraham. Noah would have been alive long enough to see Abraham. So there, there were people who had a testimony. So... While mankind, as far as modern, yeah, as far as modern times go, um, yeah, that is something that I've struggled with too. Um, but we have no idea how God's working behind the scenes. There are so many people that live in places that have been given opportunities and we're not aware of it. Um, maybe they didn't receive that opportunity through a direct witness from a missionary. They received it in some other way. We know that God's prepping people in Muslim countries through dreams. I mean, so God is at work. Um, like in these, these stories about the Muslims, they generally, as soon as they have the dream, they end up meeting a missionary soon after. So it's like, God still has this plan to bring a human messenger. Even Saul, who talked to Jesus on the road to Damascus, who did Jesus bring to him? Ananias, like, I mean, so God says, I've given y'all a great commission. And even though I'm going to help y'all out quite a bit, (laughs) more than we know, y'all are part of this. So I think that uh, a lot of that's going on. And one of the joys of heaven will be, we're going to find out how all this happened. Like we're going to be able to learn all the stories and not all at once, but we're going to get to find out, oh man, this person had this dream. Wow. God worked in that way. I, I I never knew something like that could happen. And we're going to get to see how often it happened. Um, but the idea, again, the scripture gives us is God gives us so much light and we respond to that. And, and God, I think that he is because of his just faithful nature and because he loves us, he's covenanted himself to where if someone responds to what they have, he will give them more because he wants people. That's why I talk to people about this when they ask me this question. Like, what about the people that haven't heard? I'm like, let's remind ourselves something. He wants them to be saved. So if he gives them light, if he reaches out to them in some way and they say no to him, okay, at that point, he's expressed his loving nature to them and they've said no to him. And so he would be just in saying, okay, I'll let you have what you want, even though that's not what I want. But if somebody, hypothetically speaking, if they wanted more, if they were not content with their religion, if they knew that something was wrong and the Holy Spirit can convict people, you know, in any place at any time. And these people are willing to, to change. I think God's going to get the information to them. I don't think God's going to be up in heaven thinking, well, I, I really wish I could reach out to those people, but there's nothing I can do. I don't think that's going to happen. 
So I have, I have a lot of faith in God that he is going to get those people what they need. The question, though, is, is that a normal situation? It's not. I mean, think about it. We live in America with all of its Christian background, with all these churches lined up. And how many people have we talked to that hey, they have been exposed to 100% light? They've heard the gospel completely presented to them, been in church their whole life, and they hate everything that the Bible says, and they hate God, and they hate Christianity, and they'd rather, you know, be an atheist or be a Wiccan or something like that, you know? So if that's the kind of response we're seeing in a country with all this information, imagine, you know, in some another place. So anyways, um, that's one of those things we just kind of have to leave up to God, you know? Why would I, why would you reject me your entire life and want nothing to do with me? And then at the very last moment, I go against your wishes and make you spend eternity with me. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I'm not going to make you right. do this. It, and I think it's also, God knows, he knows when free will ceases to be ceases to be there. I'm trying to find the right words, but he, he's not going to force anybody to believe. And I think that it's different for different people, but I think that God, he knows if I give so much of myself to them, if I reveal so much of myself to them, it, there will be no freedom at that point. So he gives as much as he can without coercing faith. I mean, it, it's true that if, if Jesus appeared to certain people and he performed a miracle, there would be people who would immediately drop down and believe right then. There are other people, let's say, think about the Pharisees. They had all these miracles put right in front of their face, but they didn't believe. Okay, I think that it's a it's crazy to imagine that these people were given all of this, but if G and Jesus, he knew he could force these people to believe. He could give it to them to where they would be on their knees, but at that point, it wouldn't be them. It would be him forcing it on them, and so he gave them as much as he could without going beyond that that boundary. And, and taking away their freedom. Now, I know if a Calvinist is listening to this, they're going to hate what I'm saying here. But I, I believe that God wants us to want him. He wants us to accept his love. And he's not going to violate that. So, if, if listen, if, if free will wasn't something that God cared too much about, he didn't care about it at all, then he can make everybody believe he can make absolutely anybody believe. All he's got to do is give them enough revelation, however form that takes, whatever it takes for that person, right. and he could make them believe. But why doesn't he do that? Because he's not a God that forces people to choose him. And that's not love. it's not love, and that's God's nature. Okay. And a lot of people would say, oh, well, you're putting God in a box. No, I'm not. What I'm saying is God's nature is perfect. And since he's perfect, he is never going to violate that in any way, any attribute. A loving God can't act unloving. Yeah, I, I would say I would say that, yeah. And and, and there's nothing wrong with saying that. And our and a righteous God can never act unrighteous. An honest God who is truth 
could never lie. That's why it says not only does God not lie, but he can't lie. It says that in the Bible. So I would say that there are certain things that, yes, God can't do because his nature is perfect. And if he could do these things, then he wouldn't be worthy of worship. But that's not God. That God's... Well, and, I, and you mentioned if, if Calvinism were true, if that were true, then God, who could make everybody believe in him, if he doesn't, is that really a loving God? I mean, if he loves all of his children, why wouldn't and he, he do that? And he predestined them for hell. A, exactly. Predestining someone for hell is unloving, and that's not who God that, is. Right. But that just goes again to prove because he is love, he is love. Therefore, free will has to exist. That's that's exactly right. I mean, what I'm what you said is correct, 100%. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> Sometimes I can't get the words out, but basically, the fact that not everybody believes, so not everybody is saved, that leads to one of two conclusions, and you have to ask yourself which one is most biblical and which one is logical. Logical is a secondary concern, but biblical is the number one. But let's think about this. If not everybody's saved, there's only two options. One, not everybody's saved because not everybody is chosen by God. That's the Calvinist view. Not everybody is saved because God is not going to force them to choose something that they don't want to choose. Those are your two options. God arbitrarily picks people and thus leaves other people or... God gives people freedom, and some people happen, sadly, to not use that freedom to believe, to accept his gracious gift. So, I'm trying to get this all in my head when I want to say. Um, if they knew who he was, would they still refuse? Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I think again, it's like in the end, when when God when God appears, they are and they're gonna believe that He's just. I don't think that they'll be able to deny that His judgment is just. Every tongue will confess, but will they choose His side? Well, see, at that point, it's too late. Exactly. I think that there are so many people have such hate. I think. Well, there's that, but there are a lot of people that don't have that hate. That, but, but my point, like, I guess what I was trying to say is that if God showed his glory, then they would obviously know he's God. He's the one in charge, yada, yada. But in their heart, they would not accept him. It's a power thing. That's, I think, what you were trying to say. That's what I'm saying. If you take away the power, if you take away the fear that comes from being in the presence sure. of God, it's okay. It's like a cop on the side of the road. This is the analogy that, yeah, yeah, that really won me over to this idea was if there's a cop on the side of the road and you see that cop, you're going to slow down because there's a cop right there and you fear that authority. But would you slow down if there was no cop there? No. So what kind of person really are you? If you would slow down without the cop being there, then that shows yeah, who you are. <laughs> 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 We got some. We got some. Uh, we got some super speeders present here, but uh, I think it's the same idea that listen, when they see the cosmic police officer, when they see God, they're automatically going to be like, "You're right. Yes, they're going to be on their knees." But is that really who they are? No. And I and I think honestly, that there is something to the idea that 
people in hell are, they're going to, trying to figure out how to say this, but I don't think that people in hell are going to be free from sin. They're still in their sin. And so I can't, I can't imagine a place full of sinners without sin. So what kind of sin would there exist in hell? I think that there's going to be, I know initially when they come before God and they see his power and his glory, they're going to get on their knees. But I think there's also probably going to be a lot of anger and people saying, I don't deserve this, even though they know better. I can imagine people saying, I don't deserve this, even though when they were in the presence of God, they knew it. And there's no way they could argue against God's justice. But I think once the verdict is carried out and they're in hell, I think people will, they'll try to, to say, I, this isn't right. I don't deserve there's this. There's going to be no truth there. Yeah, self-deception. Yeah, and so I think that when you think of the fact that they're away from God's presence, like you said, okay, there's no truth there. Um, they are in their sin. These are not born-again people, okay? They're, they're in all of their sin nature. Yes, I think that they'll probably, you know, complain and and blame God, blame other people, blame everybody but themselves. I mean, the rich but, man still cared about his family and wanted to send Lazarus, you know, mm-hmm. Lazarus back. So, but I, you know, whenever there was this there. idea we were just recently talking about, I'm not sure how it came up, but we did mention the whole Lazarus that they're not going to be tortured the entire time because obviously Lazarus had even a break. Where or not could, Lazarus, uh, I mean, a rich man, rich mania. Yeah, where he had a break and he was thirsty. So, I mean, there are, there's different kinds. Well, of, well, of I was. And then it possibly they just be like Lazarus. Okay, and so let me, let me explain that. Yeah, okay, there are verses in scripture. And I think it's in Isaiah. But there are references to people in hell mocking other people in hell. Mm. And. There even seems to be a reference to the fact that when Satan is cast into hell, there will be people who mock him and say, is this the one that shook the nations? There will be people mocking him. So there's going to be spiteful treatment towards each other, at least in that way. Um, But then then you have this other idea that she referenced, and I, and I read this in a, an article, and it was interesting, but the idea was, what does the rich man complain about? What is he, what is he chiefly complaining about? He, he said he wants a drink of water. Now, that seems like a really odd thing to say if you're literally on fire. Why would you be concerned about a drink of water? No, 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 no. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that his problem at the time was he was thirsty. And so what's been, what's been um, suggested by some is that in hell, they're surrounded by fire and heat and they're tormented by it, but they're not, they're not physically on fire and in it. And so what one, um, what one theologian said was imagine the lake of fire as a planet, like a volcano planet. And there are these little islands on this volcano planet. And these people are on those islands and they're, they're engulfed by the heat and there's nowhere to go. There's no way, no way to escape it. 
and so that was the image that he gave. And for some people that, and for some people that torment will be worse than for others. But he also suggested something which is possible. He says we assume that this torment will be constantly at the same level. The torment will be constant, but will it be at the same level around the clock? Um, it talks about how people in the New Jerusalem will go up and they'll eat from the tree of life. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that's going to enrich their experience. Right. There's no point in them taking the tree of life if it's not going to enhance their time on earth. So it could be that in a parallel fashion, for sinners in the lake of fire, it's going to be worse and then it's going to be less worse and then it'll be worse again and then less worse. And you see what I'm trying to say here? So we don't know and and, and we want to be careful. We don't want to downplay and I'm not trying to downplay the seriousness of hell, but we also need to be careful that we don't automatically assume and welcome these ideas that are quite frankly medieval and don't really have a place in scripture. This idea of Dante's Inferno, you know, these, these graphic images that have been passed down through the church and people don't realize that they're not in the Bible. They just assume that they are. So we know that hell is a place of fire. It's a fire that affects people's bodies that are spiritual. Okay. So we, we know that the devil, for example, is not going to have a body like us. He's an angel, but he's going to be affected by this. So it's going to be a different kind of fire than the one that we, you know, we have here on earth. But I don't think that we should dismiss it as a complete metaphor. I don't, I think that it's going to be real. I just don't think it's going to be 100% comparable to what we have now here on earth. Um, And again, it talks about uh, going back to whether or not it will be a constant uh, torment that doesn't let up any. It talks about the four living creatures. They praise the Lord day and night and they say, holy, holy, holy. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, does that mean when they, when it says day and night, does day and night mean that literally they, they don't stop. It's holy, holy, holy constantly or never. Or is it a certain time? Yeah. And when it talks about the torment, they shall be tormented day and night. It's the same expression. Mm-hmm. So it may be that their torment is more intense at certain points just like our joy in the new heaven and new earth will be more intense at certain points. Again, this these are reasonable inferences, but we don't know, so we just got to be careful about it. But going back, because we, we've got stuck a little bit on the day of judgment, that's fine, because that's exactly what we're talking about here when we discuss Hoshana Rabbah. It is about that judgment. But let's talk about the eighth conclusion now and what that means. So the Shimini Atzeret means... The eighth conclusion, okay? So it means that eighth day of the assembly. And it's about the Olam Haba, okay? Or the world to come. So, of course, the idea behind it is the new heaven and the new earth, the eternal state. And there's not a whole lot about it that Ken Johnson puts down here in the book. It's only about two pages. But he does mention that it's on this day that the reading of the Torah comes to an end. So they have readings all throughout the year and this day the eighth conclusion is also called the simchat torah which means rejoicing of the torah rejoicing in the torah and it's basically the people finishing their torah reading so that way they can commence the readings once again throughout the year so it's like things come to a conclusion and then they start over but what if it didn't start over 
Okay, because these festivals are constantly being given, right? Every year, so you're being reminded. But let's imagine the fulfillment of these things. You get to this last festival, the eighth conclusion. What if it doesn't start over? What would it be? What would it represent? The eternal state. So this is the final, the final event before eternity begins. And so I can imagine that the last day of tabernacles, the great day, it represents that day of judgment. It represents God fully cleansing his creation, removing the unbelieving sinners to the lake of fire and creating a new heaven and a new earth. And the eighth conclusion would be the beginning of eternity. So it comes, it comes what, yeah, exactly. So think about it. It's like seven days. Imagine seven days. What if that represents the 7,000 years of history? And so seven is complete. It finishes. Well, what happens after things are finished? It's the beginning of eternity. And that's the eighth, the eighth conclusion. And another thing, and I don't know if there's too much significant to this, but they would circumcise um, the Jewish boys on the eighth day. And so... I wonder, circumcision all throughout the New Testament, even in the Old Testament, has to do with removing sin and the cutting away of sin. So the removing of sin eternally and putting it away, no more is there sin. All throughout the millennium, it's a play, it's a time of peace, but they're still sinners. It talks about if the Egyptians don't come up to celebrate the festival of tabernacles during the millennium, then they'll have drought and they'll be struck by judgment. So there's sin throughout the millennium, but then you get to the end of the, of the end of the millennium and the beginning of the eternal state and sin is completely put away and you have the beginning of an eternity free from all of it. And it's a time of rejoicing. So just as they would restart their, their reading of the Torah, the beginning of a, of a new year, we have the beginning of a completely new existence right now. And it's hard for us to imagine eternity. We've talked about this before, but right now we're in this intro phase. I mean, eternity can you understand eternity? How long that's going to last? You're not can't, to 100 years. You can't, I mean, but think about it. We are so limited as human beings that we haven't even got to the end of 7,000 years. Right. And we're already thinking about how long, yeah, we're already like <laughs> destroying ourselves. That shows how horrible sin is. Um, Imagine if it kept going. Like, imagine if God didn't step into history, how bad things would get. That's why he had to step in during the flood. If God, I think that God doesn't come back a moment too soon. I think that he comes back when he cannot, because of his justice, permit it to go another inch. And I think we're getting very close to that today. But just to think that 7,000 years is nothing. And that's the beginning of our... That's the beginning of our new life, our new existence, you know, and get comfortable where you're going to be because you're going to be there forever, right? And so that's what the eighth conclusion is about. That's what it represents, the beginning of eternity. Um, there was something else in here that I wanted to mention too. Uh, there was one last thing. During the Festival of Tabernacles, they would light these giant candelabras. And according to tradition, uh, to historical references and such, they were 75 feet high, 75 feet high. And you'd have to, these young men would like have to climb up ladders and there were four. um, I'm pretty sure if I remember this right, 
there were four containers of oil at the top, and they would they would li- they had giant wicks too. But anyways, they would line or uh, light those up, and all throughout the festival of tabernacles, when they did that procession, when they'd go in and they'd pour the water there on the altar and, and the wine, they'd also have fire dancing. So they'd have torches, and and so this time of year is a really exciting time. Like the elders of Israel were known to be respectful, solemn. You've probably heard about the parable of the son or the prodigal son that the the father runs to meet his son. And that's normally something that's not done, but it's noted in historical sources that during Sukkot, the elders are dancing. And they said that was one of the the signs that it was such an important festival and such a happy time. When you have your elders, the rabbis, are dancing and doing acrobatic things. Mm-hmm. And there was one tradition about a rabbi who he would take torches and he would juggle them. So they would juggle these torches. But anyways, there was fire dancing. There were those candelabras. But these had just been put out when in John chapter 8, Jesus says that I am the light of the world. Mm-hmm. And, and I want to read that reference because it, it says that basically, even though those candelabras aren't lit now and they won't be lit for another year. The light hasn't gone out. I'm still the light. Let me see exactly where it is, but it is, it is in chapter eight. Let me see here. Bear with me. It talks about in verse 12. How Jesus spake again unto them, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. So Jesus in chapter 7 mentioned the living water when they were having their water festival. And in chapter 8, he mentions the light when the light went out. It's like that light may have gone out. He was in the temple when he said these things. That light may have gone out, but I'm still the light of the world. And this light doesn't go out, which to me is so insightful. And it's powerful because... The light that was in the temple, it it represented the Shekinah. It represented the presence of God because in this temple, this second temple, there was no Shekinah. When they built it and they rededicated it, no fire came down from heaven and filled it. So when they lit up the fire, it was to remind themselves how there was a fiery pillar that would lead them through the wilderness whenever they dwelt in tents and that God dwelt in a tent. And this pillar had descended into that tent and descended into the temple, but it wasn't there now. So we have to artificially represent the presence of God. Yeah, and I, that absolute, I'm sure absolutely that was part of it. It wasn't just the gold and the silver. It was the presence of God wasn't in it. But now Jesus, he's saying that which represented the presence of God, though that light has gone out, I am the light of the world. So it is a direct reference to Jesus being one and the same as the Shekinah. And so when that was pointed out to me by somebody, I was like, man, that is, that is huge because the, the references to Jesus' deity are abundant in scripture, but they're even more abundant when you understand the background and you're like, okay, there's no way they couldn't have seen this. And it's funny, too, because somebody might read through a lot of what Jesus says and says, well, I, yeah, he said some stuff, but, you know, I really don't understand where it says that he claims he was God. It's like, well, first off, I want you to note that the Jews who know these things better than you wanted to stone him. So they knew exactly what he was saying, even if you don't get it. But do a little bit of research 
and you'll find out. I mean, when Jesus said before Abraham was, before Abraham came to be, I am, not only is he saying that, okay, Abraham came to be, and before that, Jesus already existed, that in and of itself right. is... Exactly. But then he says, I am. But, but the, the words, I am, Jehovah. yeah, was even more powerful because of oh, yeah. Exodus chapter 3. So, anyways... Yeah. Understanding these festivals has helped me appreciate more what the Bible says. But, you know, people, I think, can take it too far still. And um, I was reading something earlier today. It was on Hebrew for Christians. And I've read some good stuff on there, so I'm not knocking them at all. But um, I just find this this desire among Gentile Christians to basically become Hebrew. And thinking that God is Hebrew. God's not Hebrew. Okay, he's not Hebrew. No. He created Adam and Eve, and from Adam and Eve come all the nations, and he chose the Hebrews for a purpose. Right. Okay, but but God isn't a Hebrew. He Jesus chose the Hebrews. Jew. Jesus absolutely. But why did Jesus become a Jew because and not a and not a Swede and or not Chinese right. or not Japanese because he chose the Hebrew people. And Jesus came through that line. So it could have been anybody. And that's kind of what God says all throughout the Old Testament. I didn't choose you because you were special. You were small. You were insignificant. And that's why I chose you. Right. That's And I chose you. Yeah. Abraham, your ancestor. Sarah, your ancestress. Okay. Old. Not able to have children. Okay. That's why I chose you. You know. And so to me... um, I think that studying this is awesome because we have a fuller appreciation for God's word. But I also appreciate the Hebrews again, like I've said before, and y'all have probably heard me say it, but when I see Israel, I see myself. And I think it could have been that way with any nation, but because God has preserved his people, Israel, ethnically, I know that he keeps me and he guards me. And, um, and I know where I'm going because he won't break his promise to me and he's not going to break his promise to Israel. So that's why I think we should be all on board with Israel has got a purpose in God's plan and God's not done with them. Because if you say God's done with them, then you may not realize what you're saying, but you're saying, okay, well, if God's done with Israel because of their sin, <laughs> then is God done with me because of mine? And if you say that, then... You, you, you basically have to give up hope if you're realistic with yourself or you become a Pharisee and you think you're righteous when you're really not. So anyways, um, for those that are listening to us, if you have any questions, we have a Facebook page, Ark of Hope. Please reach out to us and we'll answer your questions. But uh, good night. Thank you for listening.